I want to hear no sometimes. Okay. I actually want to fail sometimes so I can, you know, get up the next morning and fight. I enjoy the fight. So no, no means yes to me. It's just a matter of time. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. I got a great one for you today. I say that all the time, but I really mean it. You are going to love, love, love this dude, Chris Carmanucci. Uh, He is a Major League Baseball scout with the Arizona Diamondbacks. I knew him growing up. He was a few years behind me. We didn't know each other well, but he was in my mom's class. You're going to hear a little bit about that. And he has gone on to have a life that truly I may do my part to make it a movie someday because I think it's so great. Here's what I love about him. He has accomplished so much, but he has done it with such great humility, work ethic, and he's got a great sense of humor about him. He cares about what he does. He cares about the people he works with. He cares about the players that he finds and pulls out of their obscure situations to put him in the major leagues. Um, His experiences have been so varied and he has done everything. I mean, the guy wore a mascot. He was a mascot for, he's done everything for the baseball teams he's worked for, both as a player, as a coach, as an owner, just I, you know, I don't want to hype it up too much, um, but I'm going to, because uh, if you don't like him, I have a problem with you. Um, okay. Chris Carmanucci, full disclosure, we had this conversation May 7th, 2020, in the middle of the quarantine. It is now going to be released on opening day or around opening day 2021. So a lot of time has lagged between when we had this conversation and when we're putting it out, but truly it is timeless. It is about all of the topics that we get into on this show. He is like the poster child for 10,000 No's. I cannot wait for you to hear him. Here he is, Chris Carmanucci. I want to give a a shout out to our mutual friend, Adam Connors, because I heard your conversation with him and you, we all went to the same high school, John Jay, uh, Cross River in Westchester County, New York. And you were a few years below me or two years, yeah. or I think. 92. 92. Okay. And I was 90 from high school. So I knew you, <clears throat> I didn't know you well. I knew you played baseball. I don't think I realized at the time how well you played baseball and that you were as good as as you are or as you were. Um, And you were just another guy at school, right? And then I hear this conversation with you and Adam, and I'm just blown away by all that you've done, uh, you know, uh, major league scout, a, uh, you know, owning a team, uh, writing a book, you've just put it all together. Now, one of the things that, that made you endearing to me was one of the first things Adam asked was about 
your situation in, in high school. And it sounded like school was not necessarily the place for you, but you shouted out my mom, who was a teacher there. And uh, you talked about, let's kind of go back to the younger years. How many brothers, you have all brothers, is it all boys in your family? All boys. Yeah. Five boys. Uh, I'm the youngest of five. Youngest of five. So were you kind of the rascal of the bunch? Like, were, were you like less well-behaved than the others? Cause you were the youngest. Were you scrappier than the others? Like how did that all weigh into things? Yeah. You know, I would say I was definitely the scrappiest. I was the, the least well-behaved. Um, but you know, I, I came from kind of a tough family, you know, in that, um, you know, my, my father was a complete deadbeat and, you know, I'm not here to bash anybody, but he just wasn't a good father. Um, and, you know, my brothers and I were kind of, you know, thrust into this tough situation of trying to make uh, heads and tails of all this. So, you know, I, I, a psychologist would probably say we each have our own issues you know, with this. Um, and, you know, my issues as a, as a youngster was I definitely acted out. Um, I was definitely a fiery kid. I still am, you know, and I, and I don't make any apologies for that. You know, I, I still, uh, you know, have that side of me that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't mind a good fight, you know, and, uh, I still look, and that's why I look for them anymore. Cause I'm an old man now, but you know, at the same time is I certainly don't back away from them. And, uh, so as a youngster, I was definitely the rascal, definitely the one there's, there's a large difference of time between say myself and my next oldest brother, about six, seven years so, you know, I, I had to do a lot of raising of, on my own, you know, of things. So um, and we're not necessarily a very close family because of everything. So there was a lot of figuring out I had to do. Yeah. Six or I mean, six or seven years. That's almost like an only child. I mean, you know, my sister. So I'm the youngest of three. My brother's three years older. My sister's five years older. So she it, back then, it seemed like she was so much older than me. So really, that is a, a, a unique situation. And, and I think. What where I'm interested in your story from the perspective of ten thousand knows, I, I think you, you, you know, it, you're a classic example of someone who wasn't necessarily understood when he was younger with teachers. I feel like you kind of they missed whatever gold that you had inside of you. I don't think it was necessarily seen as I perceive it. It sounds like. They kind of, because of your, you know, like behavior or maybe just not being insecure and acting out in certain ways, people overlooked you or maybe treated you kind of poorly uh, in some way or didn't believe in you. And yet somehow that that's kind of a part of of who you are. So I'd lo- love to hear your your thoughts on that, of how how that kind of evolved. Yeah, uh, I would say that, um, you know, looking back on things, a lot of that uh, was probably my own fault, you know, that, uh, listen, I did act out. Um, I was the the kid that uh, school wasn't necessarily not for, you know, I didn't, I wasn't the kid that said, Hey, I, I get to go to school today. No, that wasn't it. And, and by the way, that was something that your mother saw in me that she was going to have to have, um, or give me some other tools to be able to make 
school work for me. And not all teachers did that. Um, a lot of teachers looked at me like I was, you know, the troubled kid who uh, really wasn't going to go anywhere. And um, I remembered some teachers at John Jay um, who would tell me, hey, listen, you know, the best case scenario, man, is, you know, maybe you're working in a factory. And, and not that there's anything wrong with that. I think that's good hard work. Um, but, you know, I, I, I did have aspirations to do bigger things. And it always, for me, uh, and this is where I blame myself, it came out wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a good underdog, uh, and I almost like being the underdog a little bit. And what I think teachers didn't see in me was the fact that that underdog in me was actually what was driving me. And, you know, out of frustration, sometimes I would act out, pound the table and do things because I wanted to be noticed. And you're hundred percent right. There's insecurity. There's, um, you know, uh, some neglect from home life and things like that all wrapped into one. But I, I think at some point, you know, and it took me a long time of, um, of being pissed off at the world. And, you know, by the way, I have to mention this. Um, if if you haven't watched uh, Michael Jordan's uh, uh, show, uh, the the series. So funny, that came man! Out. I was watching. I, I still didn't finish it. So last night, before I fell asleep watching, I was on episode six, and it's incredible. But go, go on, sorry. No, it, it, it is. And and you know, one thing that in that uh, that series that rang true for me was how he almost had to always have a yin to his yang. He almost had to have an adversary. And, you know, I, I, I'm looking at this going, Jesus, man, that's me. You know, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm certainly, I would have loved to be the basketball player he is and everything else and the businessman. Um, but at the same time is, you know, having that adversary for me was important. And sometimes I actually look back on the teachers in school not taking me seriously, them, um, uh, you know, almost belittling me to the point of, you know, hey, listen, because I would say I want to play in the major leagues or I want to, uh, you know, uh, I want to be a wealthy man one day. They'd be like, yeah, whatever. You know, yeah, you don't have a chance for that, you know. So I and I got pissed off at that. So I almost had to have that adversary to be successful in life. And I, I now look back on it. And there were people like your mother who actually said, listen, I'm not going to build on this guy's negatives. I'm going to build on his positives. And I can tell you this, when I would push back against your mom, she wouldn't come at me. She would like almost make me chase her and get the information that we were trying to do on the particular subject we were working on. So it fed into my competitive nature. And, you know, I remember that now and can look back on that and say, you know, she was totally doing this on purpose in a very intelligent, bright way to, to know how to get me from A to B. And she got me there and uh, she was amazing. And, That's uh, awesome. I actually called I, her before we sat down and, and she said to say hello. And she said he was always a good kid. And she said he was always good with me. So, you know, you wonder the chicken or the egg, you know, where, how is it how the teacher reacts to someone? Is it, is it, it, it it's so it's such a tough thing and it's chemistry, you know, it is. And she figured it out in a hurry. She was not afraid to try new things or to say, Hey, listen, this isn't working. Let's switch. And you know, that fed into me as well too. I mean, I, I before everybody was diagnosed with ADD, I probably had some form of that and she knew it and uh, she was able to, uh, you know, manipulate it, make me learn. And it was, it was an unbelievable way to, way to grow up. Yeah. Well, that doubt, I think when people doubt you or people are against you, it is a gift if you use it that way, you know, it's fuel. I feel the same way in my industry because you know, you're always being told, no, you're always being told you kind of always have this feeling of like, you're not good enough for so long in the beginning, you feel less than. And so 
some of that, you know, you need to work on your head of getting, getting around it and, and kind of building yourself up. But sometimes it's just fuel. And I agree with you. Anger can be a great, you know, can be really great fuel. Um, so what I'm interested just in you talking to, to my listeners about it, it also is kind of, it's easy to blame. You could, you know, you could look back, you could, you could blame people. Oh, they didn't do this. They didn't do that. But it is, it is on you. And whether or not they reacted properly, at the end of the day, your, you know, your stuff is your stuff and you're, and you're stuck with it. So how did it start to, how did, how did the, the, the table start to turn for you in terms of, I mean, I know you were, oh, you were doing well athletically, but if you weren't doing well school-wise, like what was it getting out of that environment where you had these people around you that were supposedly teaching you and being mentors, but weren't really, was it getting out of that, getting into a new environment? Like what, walk us through what happened after high school. Yeah, no, and, and it's a pretty interesting story, you know. So uh, my junior year in high school, uh, my brother Mark was in a very serious car accident. Uh, ended up being paralyzed from the chest down. Um, he was, um, you know, not expected to live. So at that time, um, I was, you know, kind of, you know, going through the the rigors of of recruitment to get into college. Uh, at the same time, you know, my brother, you know, was basically in a coma. Uh, paralyzed from the chest down and recovering from that. So, you know, uh, in in a way, it, it's a lot to deal with, obviously, you know, a lot to deal with as a young kid. And it was at that point in time, you know, kind of junior year going into senior year that I was watching my brother, you know, kind of progress. And he wasn't complaining. He wasn't blaming others. He wasn't the, uh, the guy that was like, oh, my God, I got hit by a car. So now I'm my life is over. No, he was fighting. And, you know, still to this day, I always say my brother's my hero. He's the kind of and, and, and he's the brother I'm very, very close with. He's the one that really gave me the strength to stop blaming others, to stop, you know, uh, uh, feeling sorry for myself at times and to say, you know what, I'm going to follow the dream that I have. So. Slowly but surely, again, thanks to your mother's help and some really good people, I was able to get my grades in order to be able to uh, go to college. Um, and I end up going to a small school uh, called Concordia College in Bronxville, New York, a little Division II school. I was there on scholarship, and I was headed in the right direction, and I get to college, and it's the first time really on my own. And what do I do? <laughs> I screw it all up. You know, I don't go to class. I uh, uh, don't practice like I should. Um, I, I spent way too much time on North Avenue, um, you know, and hanging out and partying, and uh, with uh, with our, our our friend Sean Kaling, you know, doing doing you know just way too much partying. Anyway, at, at that point, you know, I got asked nicely to leave um, uh, uh, that college, like and freshman year. I, this is freshman like, year. Or Freshman year, um, wow. I had played in the fall and had a good fall. But by the time my uh, the spring rolled around where the real season begins, uh, I had just uh, screwed up my grades so bad. It was the point of no return that basically the teachers and the, and the administration was like, you know, this isn't going to work. So I start making phone calls. And who do I call but Doug Smith, um, who was our high school baseball coach at John Jay High School. 
And Doug says, well, hey, listen, I'm coaching at a, uh, a small NAIA school in Georgia, uh, in LaGrange, Georgia. Never really been to Georgia before, but I said, hey, can you use a, 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 another player? And he said, absolutely. So I ended up going down there. I literally, you know, by the time I, I got kicked out of school to the time I headed down to uh, LaGrange College, it felt like a matter of weeks. It might have been longer. But, you know, my life changed when I got down there because I had failed. OK, yeah. and that was really the first time in my life, not that I had failed, but that I had recognized that I failed. And, and I think that's the thing we're talking about here. Everything is how you look at it, how you interpret it and how you go about it moving forward. And for me, moving forward, I, I wasn't going to let myself beat me again. You know, I've always been this guy that's real. I'm hard on myself. I am till this day. My, my, the owners of the Diamondbacks know there's no reason to yell at me because I'm yelling at me internally every time something, you know, goes wrong or doesn't work out the way that I want it. So um, at, that was really the turning point for me. Hey, I'm not going to screw this up again. I'm going to make the best out of this. I'm going to go to class, at least get the grades that I need to be able to survive. And I'm going to be the best baseball player I could be. And that was really the, the turning point for me. So, and, and my brother till this day is the one that uh, whenever I'm having a tough day, I'll say, man, who am I to have a tough day? You know, he, he, he's in a wheelchair and, you know, fighting it every day still, and you're still. talking 30 years later. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, he's still battling it out. So I use that as a lot of, uh, uh, of emotional fodder to be able to, uh, you know, fight for another day. Yeah. And, and Doug Smith, uh, was he a good coach to you and a good mentor to you in high school? fantastic. He was always great to deal with. He was always understanding. He was another father figure. He was another guy that, you know, uh, would always be there for me if I needed to talk or have an outlet or anything. And, and he was the first one always to pull me aside after a tough game or if, if he thought something was going on at home and, and just talk to me, just a tremendous man. Yeah. So you play, you end up playing all four years there? Or what happened? Well, so I, I, I ended up having I had one year at Concordia. So um, I ended up playing three more years at LaGrange College. Yeah. Uh, had three good years. You and, get your degree um, from, you get your college degree and everything? Or? You, get, you get my college degree and everything gets, uh, you know, I got everything out of that school that I needed to get out of it, you know, uh, yeah. from the degree to the playing experience to all that stuff. And my senior year rolls around and, you know, I, I figured I wasn't going to get drafted. I figured that was, you know, kind of in play, not because I didn't play well enough. I had some pretty good years there, but it was a very small school, was not heavily scouted. And um, quite honestly, we didn't have a whole lot of, uh, of a successful track record when it came to producing good players. So senior year rolls around. I don't get drafted. And, um, you know, I was heartbroken, but I was heartbroken for about five minutes. Uh, and then I said, I've got to, I've got to research because I want to continue playing. And, um, I, I start researching. We didn't necessarily have the internet or things like that. So yeah. I start making as many phone calls as I can. And, um, I, I end up talking to a friend of mine that I played against in college. And he said, Hey, they have these things called professional, uh, independent leagues. Okay. Which are not owned by major league baseball, but they're, you know, uh, they're professional, but they're kind of the lowest level of professional you can get into. And it'll give you your start. And what I found out was that there was approximately 40 of those teams around. Okay. I got my car and I, I, I got a baseball America book. I got my car and I just started driving. I would knock on the door to the coach's office or the manager's office or the GM's office. and say, Hey, I'm looking to sign. Okay. 
And I continued doing that and that and that kept getting no, 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 thank you. Sometimes they wouldn't even let me try out. Um, sometimes they would kick me out of the locker room. Sometimes they would, um, uh, you know, let me try out and then say I wasn't good enough. So it was it was all the above. Uh, but I just kept trying and trying. I was like almost out of money. I would, you know, work where I could. I would, you know, get a job doing hard labor for a few days just to make enough money to go to the next city. And, uh, you know, Again, I look back on it now and I was like, that was, it was kind of fun, you know, just being, you know, young and free and all those things and went to city to city to city. And I finally landed where I was signed by the Evansville Otters, uh, an independent league team in Evansville, Indiana. Uh, it was actually the field where um, uh, the Field of Dreams movie took place. Really? And, uh, I was going to say yeah. that's okay. Cool. It was a really cool old park and all that stuff. So I signed there. But quickly after I signed, I get released. You know, I, I, I wasn't good enough then because we were in spring training. So I didn't even make the team out of spring training. Uh, so I went back because I had pretty much exhausted all my uh, uh, teams that I could go to. And I get back home and I'm working uh, at the Wall Street Journal in LaGrange, Georgia, uh, doing whatever I could, loading newspapers, things like that, and, uh, you know, driving trucks. And I talked to a, another friend of mine who was in the game and he said, hey, they're starting this league called the Big South League uh, in uh, basically in, in the South. And they are looking for players. And I said, I'm in. I'm in. You know, he goes and, and he and he ended up being one of the coaches so he could sign me right away. And yeah. I said, I'm in. And uh, I went there and I I ended up playing for you know a year and a half. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always say. I was exposed once I got to professional baseball, you know, they put this wood bat in your hand and, you know, it's, you know, in a college, it's an aluminum bat and it's a different game. And I was exposed. And I realized at that point, you know, Hey, I, I might not be headed for the big leagues, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but at the same time is I knew that I wanted to remain in the game and be on the professional side of baseball somewhere, somehow, some way. And so that's what that year and a half had taught me. But, so uh, but I, up I until then, point. you still had the dream intact. When you were driving around the country, you started in Georgia, you went all around, you, you get to Evansville, you still were like, I'm going, I'm going to the majors. Man, I, I'm a sick dude. I still have that. You know, yeah. I'm 46 years old, and I, I still think, hey, you know what? I may, maybe one day I could play again. You know? They're going to see. They're going to yeah. see. They're going to realize yeah. what they've been missing out on. It's yeah. their fault. You know, they, they missed it. All that stuff. But you know, uh, at, at, yes, I, 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 at that point in time, I knew I had exhausted all my options, but I knew that I wanted to stay in the game and stick with it somewhere, somehow, some way. So cool. So you're so you're down there. You're, you're in, this is in Georgia now. Again, yep. you've come back. Uh, never went back to to our hometown again, did you? He, later on in life, I did, and here and there, I went back. But yeah. uh, you know, I had pretty much made my home uh, in Georgia, yeah. and uh, I lived in Florida and Alabama and uh, uh, Texas for a little bit. So I kind of you know stayed down south. So so you're there. You're like what 23, 24 years old at this point. Realize you want to stay in the game, but you not you're not going to play so so how do you pivot what what happens next yeah, you know, so I, I I do head back home at that point. Okay, at that point I head back home. I, I decided to um, go back and uh, you know try to find a job and 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 then you know 
really what I was doing was I was trying to find my next move. So I go back home and uh, I live in my uh, you know mother's house, my mother's basement for a little while, and, like we all have had to do at some point in time. And that, that, by the way, that's always the greatest wake up call. You know, you, yeah. you go back home and you know, you're looking at yourself go, what am I doing? You know, and uh, at that point, I decided that I wanted to try to uh, get into coaching. And I wanted to train young players at that point in time. I, I had always in, 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 col- or in college and even some in high school supplemented some of my income by coaching and giving lessons to young players. I enjoyed giving back to the game. I, and I still do, by the way. Let know? me interrupt you for one second. So, cause I think this is interesting to, for people, you know, people can hear these interviews and it, and it gets glossed over and it sounds kind of like everything really happened quickly, but you're talking about going back home to your moms. You're going talking about going back home and you're kind of, around your John Jay friends at this point, right? Yeah. So what what was that like? Because it, it's kind of, I, I, you know, I've experienced this differently as an actor where I was bartending in the city and everybody from college and high school, it was people were in the city and I'm behind the bar pouring them Guinness, you know, and I'm 28 years old holding on to this dream. And these guys are working on Wall Street, making all kinds of money. And I'm like, Am I delusional? You know, there's there's that feeling. So I I'd love to eat. You know, I want you to keep going with that. But what what was that like on your ego? And like what what was that like? Because that that's one thing to just say I went home and I'm living in my mom's basement and then move on. But that's a big deal at the time. Like everybody knows you went off. They thought oh he's going to be this big player. And then you come home and you kind of have to face the music and face your friends. And like, how did people react? Like, were people supportive? Like, it's going to be okay. Or were people like, ah, you know, like what was, what was that like dealing with it? And then how did you use that in your coaching of, of kids? It's a great question. And, you know, I'll say this when I came back, okay, I came back to like you, a a bunch of uh, good friends that were extremely successful at a young age. You know, you had attorneys, you had titans of business, you had people that you know now were running their parents business. And here I am, like you said, living in my parents basement. And I'll say this. I took it much worse than they acted towards me. So, you know, I have this huge chip on my shoulder and, you know, I was like, screw these guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, and nobody uh, cares, and then, really. And like no, everybody's doing cares. their own thing. No. Yeah, they're doing their own thing. They don't, they they're were not. Doing- yeah. They were doing their own thing. And not only were they doing their own thing, they were really good friends, you know, yeah. and they were like, you know, um, I, I, they probably, you know, felt bad for me in some way because they knew how hard I was trying. Um, but I felt like they were looking at me like this loser living in his parents' basement, doing nothing. So, you know, I, I probably hibernated and, and stayed away from a lot of people at that point. Because, you know, when you're when you're not in a good place in life, it's hard to, to you know, get out there and put yourself out there. So I definitely stayed away for a while. Um, the more successful you were, the less I wanted to be around you at that point in time, you know, yeah. just because I was fighting through everything and all that, but they were great. They were kind. They would, you know, try to help me. I mean, Adam Connors would help me get jobs with his dad, uh, you know, who was, uh, you know, a, a builder. And so I would go work for him and, you know, they were just always willing to be there. I actually look back on that now and wish I was a better friend. You know, I wish I was, but you know, I wasn't equipped to do it at that point in time. I was pissed off at the world. Um, and I, but here was the thing that I, I could say, I always felt like I was destined to 
do something great. But I was so annoyed that it was taking so damn long. You know, I was like, you know, what's what's happening here? Why is this taking so damn long? So, you know, I'm back at home. I still feel that way, by the way. And, yeah. I, and oh, I'm I, almost I I'm like, when, when is it coming? <laughs> yeah, I, and I'm right there with you. And I think that's part of what makes us good. I think you have to have a little bit of that, you know, in you. Yeah. Um, but so I, I decided to immerse myself in teaching young kids. And I ended up uh, uh, hooking up with a batting cage, which was in Lyndhurst, New Jersey. And so I would drive from Westchester County to Lyndhurst, New Jersey every day. And I'd work with five or six young aspiring, you know, baseball players. And, you know, I, I always felt that I, because of the home life I came from and because of the situation I came from, that I was pretty good with dealing with kids that maybe it might be at higher risk. Maybe they, they came from similar backgrounds that I did. And, you know, I wanted to mentor them. And, you know, the, the old saying that, you know, if you, wa- if you want to get ahead in life, you mentor somebody because it teaches you a lot about yourself, yeah. you know. And, you know, so this was helping me to get through life as I'm, you know, working with these young kids and as I'm, I'm you know, kind of building into, you know, that as a business. And that became a business for me for a few years. You know, I, I taught as many kids as I could. I started youth baseball teams. I started How old to- were these kids, Chris? They were, they're anywhere from eight to 18 and, you know, trying to get them to, you know, into colleges and trying to help them. And were any of them like going pro or was it not that level of not that level? They were good. They were solid. You know, a couple went to college and played, but this was more of an atmosphere of trying to make a, a a high school player better is really what it was or a little league player better. That's what it was. Okay. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much, but the one thing it didn't give me was competition. And if there's one thing I've learned from me in life is I need to get up in the morning and compete, whether it be at something, you know, uh, and, you know, giving a lesson to a player one-on-one is not necessarily going to give you that same feeling uh, of, of drive uh, that a game will, where there's a winner and loser at the end. And you can certainly vicariously live through the, the player you're working with, but that wasn't enough for me to be quite honest. So, so Go ahead. Sorry. So how far into it do you come to that conclusion where you're like, this is cool. Like at this point, were you making enough money to move out of your mom's basement or or were you making money, putting it away and staying there? Like what was logistically, how long was this period and what was your life like for that bit of time? You know, uh, I was making some money, um, but you know, like, like most really smart young people our age, you know, I was like, man, I'm rich now. I'm making a few dollars. So what do I do? I moved to Hoboken um, to be closer to work, but also live closer to our friend, Adam. And uh, at the same time, I meet my wife, my future wife, and um, who went to Fox Lane. And uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I was kind of courting her at the same time and, you know, trying to build my business and, at the same time, grappling with the the fact that I wasn't getting what I really wanted out of coaching, which was to compete, you know. And uh, so I, I, I did that for a number of years. My wife and I end up living in sin, you know, after that in Hoboken in that area, and um, you know, eventually get married and have three kids. But um, you know, at that point, I'm about two years into uh, working with young kids. And, um, you know, the business is doing fine. Um, you know, I'm a mess though, because I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm not, uh, getting, getting the, the, you know, competition factor that I keep bringing up and I start making some calls and I end up getting a job, uh, at St. John's university. Okay. As the, uh, fourth assistant. So basically I'm the lowest assistant to the low at St. John's university. And it was kind of a funny story is, 
the first time I went in and I interviewed, uh, I didn't get the job. Okay. And, um, they, they end up going, giving it to somebody else. And the head coach, Ed Blankmeyer, who uh, just recently left, who's a legend there at St. John's, he calls me up a few weeks after I got told I didn't have the job. And he says, hey, we're going to open this thing back up again. And I just go, I'll take it. And what I came to find out later was he meant he was going to open up the, you know, you know the, the interview process again. <laughs> but I, I, at that point said, I'll take it. And he was like, okay. <laughs> so, so he just gave me the job. So at the same time, I, and I learned so much during that year at St. John's uh, and it gave me that fever that I had to where I wanted to compete again and I could compete. And at the end of the day, there was a winner and there was a loser and there was a, a player to be able to work with and get better. And, and, you know, I could, I could really build a career off of this. So that was the first big break that I got. So at that point, was that so all inclusive that you had to give up your business of coaching that you were doing from out of Hoboken? Like, was this a full-time job you took and was it, it a was pay a- cut? It was a full-time job. It was a pay cut. Um, and I also still had the business on the side. Uh, but a- after you know trying to do both for a while, the business suffered. And I decided, hey, listen, I'm going to go after this full force and go, go into coaching. And I-, I can't have the baseball academy anymore. So I shut that down and I moved on from it. And uh, I continued to coach and learn and you know do everything. And one of the things that I – the advantages I had was that – like I said before, I had Coach Smith, who was just this tremendous teacher. So I had learned a lot of, about the game from a young age that I wanted to be able to give to other people and compete at the same time. So coaching in college really gave me that. The part I didn't enjoy about college coaching was the NCAA and the rules. And, you know, you, you, you couldn't work with players at certain times. Um, you know, they, they, you had to follow these very strict recruiting rules and things like that. So, you know, if you know anything about me, rules are not for me, you know? So, you know, and, and I say to my kids, you know, break rules, not laws. Okay. Don't break any laws, but break yeah. all the rules you can, yeah. because, you know, that's, that's somebody else telling you what to do. So, um, you know, I, I probably was not cut out for college coaching. Uh, and then a year into it, I got the opportunity and the call to go um, be a hitting coach in the minor leagues for an independent league team up in Bangor, Maine. So I resigned from St. John's and uh, the, the coach there, Eddie Blackmire, was a tremendous uh, help to me. And he said, hey, you got to go do what you got to do. You know, he was kind of shocked, I think, that I was leaving. But at the same time, as I, I knew I had to get on the professional side of things and, and I was ready for a change then, too. And was this the independent league, the first one that you went that you found in Evansville, or is this a different independent different, league? Different one. This okay. was called the Northeast League, and okay. uh, independent baseball had come a long way since then. Uh, and it was really very competitive, and it wasn't easy to get a job in. And um, a good friend of mine was the manager of the team and who hired me. And uh, we ended up having this. This was 2004, and uh, we ended up having a great year. And uh, fr- from there, I caught the bug. From there, I absolutely knew that I wanted to be on the professional side of baseball and not anywhere else. And you were at this point, you were what was the official role there at that team? I was the hitting coach um, and assistant coach or, or a bench coach. You would call it professional baseball for this particular team. And, uh, you know, that was really my, you know, I, I was, I wasn't the manager. I didn't have a high ranking role, but this was a chance to get my foot in the door on the professional side as a coach. And it was, it was just the, the most fun season you could have. I was with a great manager and mentor who I could learn from. We, we did well, made it to the playoffs, had a good season. And uh, at that point in time, it was just, it, everything worked out rosy. And then the end of the season comes and the manager decides to leave 
uh, to go to a different team. And they call me and the GM calls me and says, Hey, do you want to be the manager? And I'm like, heck yeah, I want to be the manager. You know, I mean, you know, no doubt. I didn't even know how much I was going to make. Um, I think, you know, I made $25,000 a year. I think was, you know, everybody thinks, oh, it's professional baseball. You're going to make a bunch of money there. Yeah, yeah, if it was 25000 it was a lot. It might have been less. And uh, I got the opportunity to become the manager. Uh, I got the job in October. The season was supposed to start in May. I got a call in April from the owner, and he says, hey, we're going out of business. And, you know, we're, we're, unfortunately, we got to we got to shut everything down. So I had already built a team. I had already had all the players and we were ready to report and they shut the, the uh, completely shut the team down. And, and this happens a lot in this side of professional baseball because they're not big money makers. And eventually, you know, the owner gets tired of losing money. So they shut it down. So he shuts it down and uh, I don't have a job. And I'm sitting at my home in Danbury, Connecticut. Um, and I, I have my wife who is now pregnant. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, you know, trying to figure out what I do. And the phone rings and it's the league that this team was in. Uh, it was called the Northeast League. And the commissioner of the team says, listen, I'm going to throw something out at you. Uh, it's a little crazy, but, uh, you know, think about it if you want. And I'm like, what is he going to ask me? And he says, we're going to have, because uh, we need an even amount of teams, and obviously your team's out of business, but we're going to take that team that you were going to manage, and you're going to play all 100 games on the road. So you're going to be a road team for 100 games straight. And I'm like, okay, done. I'll do it. Didn't even talk to my wife. Didn't even say anything. Uh, you know, <laughs> I just said. Your when, pregnant when I wife. To, didn't even talk yeah, to your yeah. pregnant wife. <laughs> didn't even talk to my pregnant wife. And, and I have to tell you, she's, she's amazing. And, because she was like, listen, you got to do what you got to do. I get it. You got to do this. And the way that I looked at it, and I ended up being right, was this. Was that I had never managed before. They're putting this team on the road. And they have no expectations. The only reason they're putting us on the road is so the other teams can make money and stay in business. So they don't care if I lose every game. As a matter of fact, they probably want me to lose every game because I'm going in and playing against the home team. So I looked at it as the perfect opportunity to be able to learn on the job. And I was right. 100 games straight, learning on the job. There, There had never really been many of these teams. And about halfway through the season, a reporter from the Boston Globe gets wind that there's this team that's uh, on the road for 100 games straight. And he calls up the calls me up and says, can I come on the road with you? And I was like, hell yeah, come on the road with me. So we spend a month together um, and it was a great, great reporter. And uh, it, we had a tremendous amount of fun together. But he documented and chronicled this whole you know, month of us being on the road and did this great article. And lo and behold, he does this article. And then all of a sudden, I'm... I'm then somebody that people want to talk to in the baseball world. My phone starts ringing off the hook. Hey, can you come speak at this? Can you do this? Can you speak at our Rotary Club? Can you do that? So I started speaking, you know, after that season quite a bit, just from this great article that he had written. Um, And just another thing before we go on, one of the things that that season taught me was I didn't want to go out of business again. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have to rely on an owner uh, to, to be in business. So at that point in time, I made a, a pact with myself that when I got the opportunity, I was going to own my own team. And it didn't come many years later, but it kind of gave me the idea that, listen, I wasn't going to put my fate in anybody else's hands anymore. I was going to control my own destiny. So when the opportunity comes, I'm going to buy my own team. So that kind of gave me the idea. This is so awesome. I, I, I love this. How old are you at this point when you're, when you're on the road and this guy 
there's a reporter comes to to go with you on the road and is he roughly the same age is he older is he what's the, what's that so he was much older um and you know he had been a war reporter uh, so i i was asking him questions while he was asking me questions and um you know I'm trying to remember how old I was. I'm roughly 27 years old at this point, I think. I think it's what I was, um, 26, 27, uh, you know, newly married, uh, you know, child, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, just on the road the whole time and uh, just trying to enjoy every moment of it I could. But at the same time is worrying that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to pay the bills. Yeah. Um, you know, what what does my uh, future look like? Um, is my wife going to get sick and tired of this? So thank God she didn't. And she gave me some time to be able to make money. You know, I was just going to say a huge shout out to your wife, Even even though she went to Fox Lane, we're going to give her a shout out. Um, but but that's all, that's awesome that that you know. How did that look? I mean, she's she's pregnant with your first child at this point. Yeah, pregnant with and, her first child. And so you're literally. Do you get home to see her at all, or do you have like a a month or two where you're totally gone? I was gone for literally most of three, four months straight, but I got home, you know, a couple times, but it wasn't enough. They came and met me on the road a few times. Um, and, you know, that part of it, uh, you know, what was a godsend that we did get to see each other. And, you know, the good part about baseball is you do get an off season, yeah. you know, so if you can get through, it's like you getting through a movie set and all those things and, and a movie time, and then you hopefully have some time to be able to spend at home. Right. And, you know, that's what we did. We, we kind of said, listen, we're going to do this. And, um, you know, that off season came and I obviously, Obviously wasn't going to go back to a, a road team because that that team was going to have a home somewhere. And I was hoping that I was going to go with the team that I had managed to that eventual home. And what ended up happening was um, I sooner than that, I got a call. Let me let me back up for a second. So right as the season ends, I didn't know where I was going to go. I'm home. Um, you know, I need to make some money. Obviously, I got to pay for formula and diapers and all that stuff. So I'm just doing odd jobs. I'm doing anything that I can. And my phone rings and it's a team, an independent team in St. Joe, Missouri. OK, uh, about an hour outside of Kansas City. And uh, they offered me the managerial job of the St. Joe Black Snakes, uh, which, you know, was was a, a brand new team. And it was governed by the same league that I uh, was managing the road team in. They didn't play each other, but it was kind of governed by the same commissioner and league president and all that stuff. So uh, they offered me the job. And I, and I figured, listen, I'm not going to wait for that road team to be able to find a home. I'm going to take this job now. Yeah. So make, take this job now, get a huge raise up to maybe $35,000, $40,000 a year. And I say to my wife, listen, one of the stipulations in this is they, wanna, they want me to move to St. Joe so I can be part of the community and be in the media and all that stuff. So I pack the car up. I leave um, uh, early on to go to St. Joe. Find us a place to live. Find us a, a you know, a, you know, all the, the the stuff that we'll need. And I go there, find a place, all that stuff. My wife stays back home, ends up staying with her parents for a little bit. You know, there's no more humbling experience than when your wife has to move in with your in laws. You know, yeah. who probably at the time were looking at me like, "Well, you really married a winner." You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and I remember my father-in-law once having to talk with me. You know, hey, you know, maybe you should, you know, be a high school coach, a teacher, and all that stuff. And I was like, "Yeah, I could," but you know, that's not really for me. You know, yeah. and um, you know, one thing you'll learn: I, I did nothing as you're supposed to do it. You know, nothing by the rules or anything like that. So, you know, we end up moving to St. Joe, Missouri, end up having a great year managing these St. Joe Black Snakes. And uh, it was a, a, a fun year. It was a um, an underdog type of situation. You know, first year teams 
And um, teams, like I mentioned before, that are on the road 100 games, they're not supposed to win. By the way, and before you go on, how, how what was your record with that the road team? How'd you we guys- were about, about 500, wow. you know, which was okay. really, really good. Yeah, so it, it wow. exceeded expectations. And, you know, and so now my- you get here and you're in another situation. And, and how does this go? So what, what's the... I'm in another situation and there is pressure on me because this is a new team. Um, They want me to win. Okay. It's an underdog situation. And what do I do? I go out and I start the season two and 18. Okay. We start the season and I am, you could ask my wife, I am coming home. I'm not sleeping at night and I always sleep well, but I was this point, I was not sleeping well. And I didn't know what I was going to do. The newspapers were writing, you know, that I was like the Forrest Gump of baseball, you know, that basically, uh, you know, calling me, uh, I, I thought they were calling me an idiot, but, you know, hopefully the, at the, at the end of this, they were calling me smart uh, because we ended up winning 27 out of 30 games after that, wow. breaking the, breaking the league record uh, and of, of most wins in a row, which is like 17 or 18. And prior to this winning streak, I basically ha- I, I, I knew I was going to get fired. If this had gone on, I was going to get fired. And, and when you're a minor league manager, it's not like you have a guaranteed contract like I do now working in the major leagues. This was, you know, hey, you get fired. You're not getting paid anymore. You're lucky if you get bus money home. So, you know, I, I, I sat down with the team and I said, listen, guys, you may not care about this, but I've got a wife and kid at home. We want to have more kids. And you're going to get me fired. OK, you guys are all you suck right now. You're going to get me fired. I'm going to be home. I basically had a breakdown in front of the team. And after that, they ended up winning 27 out of 30. We end up uh, uh, finishing way over 500, having a very successful season. What do you think it what do you think that you hooked into your team emotionally and they brought more to the table on, on your behalf? Do you think you changed strategy? Did you get like, how did, I mean, we could do a whole episode on that, which we're, we're going to try to move on, but I'm, I'm interested. Like, how do you go from two and 18 and then 27 out of 30, you win the next 27 out of 30. What, 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 what was it that emotional hook? What was it that motivated them? Or do you think it was it just like they needed time in the beginning to gel? How, how would you describe that? They definitely needed time to gel, but I think the, the big kicker for them was we were both figuring each other out. And during this uh, team meeting that I had, I let them know that ownership wanted me to get rid of all of them. Okay. Literally the ownership had said to me, you need to get rid of all these guys and get a new team. And this was true. I told the ownership, I'm not doing it. I'm not getting rid of them. We all go together. And I told them this, I told the team that, you know, Hey, listen, we're in this together. You're going to get me fired. And by the way, you're going to go with me, you know? And they were like, Oh man, this guy stood up for me and we're playing with, and by the way, you know, as a young manager, I probably wasn't as strict as I should have been. I mean, our guys were out all night long, partying it up, right. uh, you know, saying out, you know, way, way too much. They weren't sleeping, you know, coming to games hungover, things like that, you know. And I wasn't policing it as much as I should because, you know, professional baseball, you've got to be a little more lax on guys and they have to be able to do what they have to do. But what I did was I wanted them to take ownership of this. I wanted to see that I would fight for them. And at the end of the day, uh, they saw that. And I think that's what changed it. I think they trusted me them. Then I trusted them and we came together and we had a general understanding of what we needed to accomplish. And that was a big, big turning point. Well, you know what else I'm thinking you did was you kind of used the, what I'm thinking is what happened to you in high school where all those teachers doubted you and you were pissed off about it. You kind of like rallied a collective anger toward the ownership saying they're going to get rid of them. So you put yourself on the same side of the line as them and said, hey, these guys are doubting us. You're going to take that? I mean, that that's It's kind of brilliant. 
you know, I, I, uh, in hindsight, you're actually right. And I didn't think of it at the time like that. And, it, it, you know, I will use that again if I have to. You know? <laughs> so, so, but, you know, standing up for players and people, that, that's never been something I've, I've been afraid of doing. Um, I was just glad that it, it came to fruition and they saw that we were on the same team. So um, you know, we end up having a strong year um, and we don't win a championship, but we end up having a strong year and, and everything, you know, works out well. Uh, my wife and I, at that point, are living in this small town of St. Joe and um, we 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 see some uh, I'm trying to describe we, we see some things within the community that you know aren't necessarily going to be long term things for us okay um, and you know one of the things at that point in time we knew that my daughter my my oldest had a which now my oldest uh, had some developmental things going on and we didn't quite know what they were um, and there was not a lot of help for her in this community so we decided at that point that I was going to go to ownership and I was going to try to move on and go to a different team at this point. You know, the baseball side of it was great. The The town of Missouri or the town of St. Joe, Missouri was fine. Um, but if we were going to have a daughter that ended up being on the autism spectrum, we were going to make sure that she had all the, the help and everything that she needed. And I went to the owners who how, at that how many point, seasons in Chris at this point, so just that after one that, season, that just one season, season. Okay. One, one season it was in. And, and, you know, we had noticed some things going on with our daughter where she okay. was delayed a little bit. And my wife being a teacher, uh, she was a teacher at North Selm high school before she, you know, uh, before all this, she was really acute in knowing these things and she saw something right away and thank God she did. So I went to ownership and I said, listen, guys, I, I need to, to move on here and go to a different team. So I, I hope you'll let me out of my contract. And they said, not only will we let you out of your contract, but we also own the team in Atlantic city, New Jersey, um, which I kind of knew, but I didn't, you know, put two and two together to even ask for this job. And uh, they said, and we're making a managerial change there. Would you like to go to Atlantic city, New Jersey, which, got us closer to our families uh, on the East Coast. It was also in a really cool city um, and a surrounding area where there were some, we, we lived in Mays Landing, which is about 20 minutes outside of Atlantic City. Uh -huh. And uh, there was great schools. There were great help for uh, kids and, and, and kids on the autism spectrum. So we decided to take that job and I got a little bit of a raise and maybe went up to like 45 or 50 thousand dollars a year and i ended up uh, taking that job and the next year we moved to atlantic city new jersey and uh, uh you know again just drove cross country moved um this is 2007 okay and uh i'm managing the atlantic city surf and it was a um just a a fun fun uh you know time managing the team and at that point in time i was considered of being in one of the big market teams now so I wasn't the underdog anymore or anything like that. I was really, really expected to win. And, um, you know, that season went really, really well. Uh, we, we built a winning team. And at this point in time, I was getting a reputation of being a good manager, but also being a guy that could, could build a good team. And the nice thing about this level of professional baseball is you do both. Uh, where at the major league level, you have a GM and a manager, which are separate. You're kind of both in, in these independent leagues and all that stuff. So we have a great year. We have this tremendous, tremendous year. I end up winning manager of the year. Uh, we get knocked out the final round of the playoffs, um, which was heartbreaking. But, you know, we got pretty far and, and ownership was very, very happy. Um, so at that point, um, uh, the end of the year comes and uh, I go for my end of the year interview with ownership and they say, hey, listen, 
just so you know, we're about to go out of business. <laughs> we don't, we don't have any money. Uh, you know, we're not even sure you're going to get your last check. You know? So I was like, Oh my God, you know, what, what am I going to do? Um, you know, they say, uh, so, you know, it is what it is, you know, so, you know, you, you, do you have any ideas? And I said, well, actually I have some ideas. And at that point in time, I had made some really good connections within the community of Atlantic city and, and, uh, you know, that whole South Jersey area. So I said, what if I could put together some money and we become partners? And I had never raised money before. I'd never done those things before. And, um, I ended up, uh, they said, yes, sure. Of course I ended up, uh, raising money. Uh, we ended up becoming partners with these guys and keeping the team in business. And at that point in time, I knew that I was not going to be able to stay on the field and also have raised the money and have to look over this, you know, fairly large business for somebody that didn't have a whole lot of business acumen and be able to run this thing. So I said to myself, I'm going to become the CEO and, and the owners wanted me to become the CEO of the team. Never had really run a business before. And uh, I became the CEO of the team. And at that point in time, I had to hire a manager. And, you know, I, I needed somebody with a big name and a big splash. And over the years, Cecil Fielder and I, who played for the Yankees and Detroit Tigers and been a 50 home run guy and all that stuff, had become friends. Well, I called Cecil up and I said, hey, you know, do you want to, uh, you know, be part of this uh, team? And, you know, he, this was a guy that he was sitting at home, you know, uh, didn't need to do anything. And he, he took the job. And um, that was a big splash for us. And we ended up doing really, really well from a market standpoint. Um, we ended up, you know, making money that year and we turned the, the team around. So in 2008, this is now, um, we have this tremendous, tremendous year. And we really end up uh, uh, t taking things to another level. And we get this team on track and it's making money. So it's, it was a fun year. Wow. So a couple questions. One, uh, what kind of individuals did you raise money from? Were they just in any industry? They just had a lot of disposable income. They were friends of yours or were they, what, what was that situation? That's they, they were stockbrokers and they were business owners, but they were people that were generally tied to the local community there. And that's what you need with a minor league team. You need people that are invested in keeping it there as a gathering point because, you know, gathering points, as we know right now, because we can't do it, are so yeah. important. Yeah. And they wanted to keep it there. So that's why I raised the money from those types. And, you know, at the time it was a lot of money because I, you know, I raised, you know, a million or two dollars. I think it was a 1.2 million at the time. And, and, and the other thing, uh, Cecil Fielder, how did you know him from? from playing when you were playing or, or just around the, the game of baseball? How'd that come about? So when I worked as the hitting coach in Bangor, Maine, uh, the, the manager I worked for was Cash Beecham and his best friend was Cecil Fielder. So I met him through Cash. And, you know, it, again, like Adam Connors would say, it's about connections and yep. about your, your circle and all that. And, and I, I relied on, uh, on, uh, my friend cash to be able to get Cecil to come to me. And he did. And it was the best movie ever made. He was a great manager, great person, brought us a lot of notoriety that we wouldn't normally have had. And we ended up having a, like I said, a super successful season, both on the field and off the field. But by the way, what it taught me was, I, I had I had to learn so many different parts of this business because I raised money, but we still had to cut costs and everything else. So yeah. I did everything. I sold tickets. I hung wall signs up. I um, uh, you know would would uh, contact season ticket holders. You know when their packages were up. I you know sold advertising. I, I did everything I needed to do. I did very. I even put on the mascot outfit. By the way, you know at times just to, <laughs> just because you know we you know you have these small budgets that you're running on. And yeah. I'll say this: probably the biggest attribute I have is that. 
that, you know, I was willing to do anything and everything I needed to be successful. And that formula ended up working, um, you know, in in this atmosphere. And uh, we, again, like I said, we had a great year. We're flying high at this point. Okay. One more question before you, I want to get back to flying high, but one more question. When you were doing your baseball Academy with the young kids and you were coaching them, that was a business. It was a small business, but did you, were any of those lessons that you learned there applied to this? If it, or could have you never connected those dots? No, I, I've tried to connect the dots. I, I think the lessons that I learned in the business of the baseball academy were the mistakes that I made because I, I was so short-sighted. Um, I, I was, you know, uh, I, I would spend money on things you shouldn't. Um, I, I probably, you know, uh, instead of putting money back in the business, I spent too much money on me. You know what I mean? And doing stupid things like that. And I learned the hard way that I needed to be able to just put everything I can into the business. And so the lesson learned was the lessons of hard knocks. I wasn't going to make the same mistake of, you know, blowing cash or blowing capital on on something that wasn't a necessity so i really just i keyed on the necessities at that point yeah no i'm just pointing that out because i think you know anybody goes through i'm sure that did make you money at the time but it wasn't like something that you could hang your hat on forever and i i think it's good for people to hear like the, the no experience in my opinion is wasted and sometimes the you know the the whole tagline of this show is failure's opportunity it's the, the the ones all of the situations you're talking about that led to you where you are now they were all like you know getting a call that the 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 team is going out of business. It's it's like, it, it really does work that way. So anyway, I cut you off. You said we were riding high. You had that great we're season. Ri- yeah. We're riding high. And as you'll hear through this whole thing, as I finish, go, go through my whole story here, it's highs and lows. Okay. So I'm coming off this high, um, as a CEO, I was able to pay myself. Well, um, I was able to, um, you know, be in a really good place. And I'm looking forward at this point to the next year, which is 2009. Well, at that point we get a call from the city of Atlantic city because our lease was coming up and Bader field, which is where the stadium is located was coming up for sale and they weren't going to renew the lease. So in essence, we were right out of business again. Wow. Because so we, we couldn't go to the league and, and we didn't have a lease. And, you know, even though we had made some money was still tight. So it wasn't like we were going to go to another city and try to open up shop and all that stuff. So um, at the end of that year, I had to shut down the team. I had to uh, not only did I have to shut oh. down the team and tell all the players they were released and, and let my dear friend Cecil Fielder go. Um, but I then had to sell everything that wasn't nailed down to the stadium just to be, you know, so, you know, and, everything that we owned, I had to get rid of and sell and all that stuff. And then, you know, thankfully the investors understood and they got some money back and things like that. I mean, it wasn't pretty by any means, but it was what it was. So at that point in time, I have no idea where I'm going to go. I, you know, it's the end of the season, it's October. Um, I get a call again, these calls always seem to come in at the right time, but I get a call from a minor league owner by the name of Van Schley. Okay. Um, Van is a, a kind of a famous uh, independent league owner and a guy that's basically a father to me now. Uh, and he says to me, listen, I own this team in in Massachusetts. Uh, I'm partners with Bill Murray. I'm partners with Jimmy Fallon, uh, Lauren Michaels, and uh, we want you to come be our manager. And we like the idea of having you be our manager. One, because I was known when I was managed for getting thrown out of a lot of games and kind of, you know, you know, being a flamboyant guy. 
But he said, our business here also isn't doing so well. And we want you to kind of do both. We want you to be the manager, but we also want you to look after our, our business. And uh, so I, again, I said, okay, let's do it. So um, my wife and I then decide to uh, uh, move from, the, from South Jersey to uh, Southbury, Connecticut, which is uh, a town in which uh, our good friends, the Candulos live and uh, uh, some other friends that we have, but they also had a really good program for uh, autism and things like that. So uh, we ended up uh, moving there. I become the manager of uh, the Brockton Rocks uh, ROX, which was, uh, again, another tremendous experience. Uh, we have a, we have a fantastic year. Um, you know, it's, it's, we have a fantastic year on the field. I'll say this, the business was continuing to trend down. Um, and it was going in the wrong direction for sure. Uh, but at that time it was, it was sink or swim, you know, for me, you know, it was, Oh my God. Okay. I'm seeing the trends going here, even though we have all these wealthy owners and I get to be part of the business. Um, how is this going to work out long-term for me? You know, like what's going to happen. And, um, I, at, I'll say this. So after the uh, 2009 season, again, we have a tremendous season. We end up going to the playoffs. We lose in the championship round. And, uh, but still everybody's very, very happy. And, uh, you know, I'm in the running for manager of the year and all that stuff. Um, I sit down with the ownership at the end of the year and I said, listen, I can't look after this product and be on the field at the same time. It's not going in the right direction. And, you know, I, I always said, people are always like, well, you know, you had Bill Murray, who you had Lauren Michaels, you had these easy guys uh, running and I'm sure they would just throw money at problems. You know, I could tell you stories about Lauren Michaels yelling at me about the hot dogs not being cooked enough and, you know, things like that, because they took, they, they, there's a reason why these guys are successful. Yeah. They are titans of business because they take things, they take themselves seriously and everything they put their, um, you know, mind on and name behind seriously. So at the end of the day, I needed to get off the field and, you know, run this business for them. And I made a deal with them at that point in time that I would become an, one of the owners um, and I would have full operational control of the team. They, they couldn't tell me what to do necessarily, um, even though I respected them all. And, and by the way, till this day, Bill Murray and I are very good friends. And this is all thanks to van schly who brought me over to these brockton rocks so anyway so i become part owner of the team i become the the ceo and you know operating officer of the team and everything else have full autonomy and they they i need to hire a manager and i was looking for somebody that might be a good name recognition uh person but also somebody that was a little bit infamous and i i ended up landing on bill buckner you know, and every New York Mets fan knows, yeah. obviously, Buck was the guy that, the you know, the ball went between his legs. And unfortunately for him, you know, uh, his career was shaped on this. So I hire Bill Buckner. He's still pariah in the, the uh, Boston area. And by the way, this team is 30 minutes outside of Boston, you yeah. know, from, from Fenway. It's only 30 minutes. So I, Bill reluctantly, reluctantly takes this job. And I, he said to me on several teams, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, listen, man, everybody loves a comeback story, yeah. you know, and, you know, at, at and that he point had a time, great, didn't, isn't the story with Buckner that he had an amazing career and it's just, he's just known for that. I mean, I remember everybody 
I remember being at my older cut. I was like a ring boy in the, a ring bearer in a wedding. I was like seven years old or whatever it was. No, what was I? 14 years old or something. 86 World Series. Yeah, it was like everybody knows that about him, but he had an amazing career, right? He, he arguably had a Hall of uh, Fame career. I mean, you know, he had just about 3,000 hits and, you know, he was this tremendous player. And unfortunately, he was remembered and will re- be remembered for this one error that he made. And he probably shouldn't have been in the game at that point they should have put a, a defensive replacement in and all that stuff but i'm going to say this because everybody asked me the same question they were always like what kind of guy was buck probably the kindest sweetest gentlest person i've ever met we, we'd be at breakfast together and some old lady would walk up to him and be like you crushed my dreams you know you ruined my life and you know they, they just they, they they and he would handle this with such you know tact and kindness and you know he, he he's one of these guys that you know i try to live by the idea that you know you'd rather be kind than be right you know and if you, if you have the opportunity to do either one pick kind because that's normally the right thing and when buck was was uh, uh, was put in these tough positions he always chose kind and he manages uh, the same way. The players loved him. Uh, we had 2010 comes. We have this tremendous, tremendous uh, season, and you know we're doing pretty well financially too, as well. And um, uh, at the same time that you know we're, we're doing well on the field, the team's doing well financially. Um, you know, I, I, I'm missing the the field at that point. You know, I, I mean, I am. You know, I mean, but at the same time, is I know that I'm learning the business side of this, and it's an important thing for me to learn. So I'm learning on the job. I'm sometimes learning the hard way. Um, it, it's teaching me now to look into the business of baseball more and more and more. And while we saw an upticks in the uh, finances of the Brock and Rocks at that point in time, and you know ownership was happy and all that. The business model of independent baseball, due to the recession and things like that, I saw it trending in the wrong direction. And at the same time as I have this team in Brockton and I'm the uh, the co-owner and running it, I get this idea to start a. Uh, a summer collegiate league, which is basically like a professional league, except players from college play in it. And so at the same time, I'm running this team and, you know, working 20 hours a day, I decided to make life hard on myself and, and decide to start this, this league that we set forth for 2011. Okay. And at that point in time, I decided that after the season of 2010 was over, I was going to start this summer collegiate league and I was going to take the Brockton Rocks and I was going to put it into this league because it would be more lucrative. It would uh, made more sense. You don't pay the players. You don't have a lot of the uh, business uh, expenses that you have, like workers comp and large insurance payments and all those things. So I decide I'm going to start this league, but I don't have any teams to start the league with other than, say, the Brockton Rocks. OK, so I. I and I hire a, a young man by the name of Darren Panis, and he comes up with the idea, let's put a team on Martha's Vineyard, okay? And at that point in time, we, uh, we, we, go, we go to the town of Martha's Vineyard. We go through all this stuff, too much of a story to tell, but we end up getting approval to put a team on Martha's Vineyard. Well, now we only have two teams, which will be the Brockton Rocks and, and the uh, Martha's Vineyard team, which we notably called the Martha's Vineyard Sharks, which is still around till this day, okay? And um, uh, but we only have two teams. We go to the Cape Cod League, which incidentally, I didn't mention this earlier, I coached in the Cape Cod League at the same time that I was coaching at St. John's. Uh, so I, I did both at the same time. I should have mentioned it, but I didn't. And um, we, we, we go to the Cape Cod League and they say, listen, we're not looking for any more teams. We don't want you. Um, so 
at this point, again, we have two teams. I, I go to a, a team and an owner in Nashua, okay, who was an independent league team at the time. And he says, I'll join you. I believe in that. So now we have three teams. Okay. Uh, the problem is, is that obviously we don't have a fourth team and I have all my money invested in this thing. So I find it a fourth team in Torrington, Connecticut. I take every last penny out of my credit cards and everything else like that. And we start a team there. So I not only have the Brockton rocks, the uh, team in Martha's vineyard that I own uh, and starting this league and everything else. But I have um, uh, all the, this money that I'm spending now on another team now in Torrington, Connecticut. And at that point in time, I sit down with Bill Murray. Um, I sit down with guys like Van, who I mentioned before and all that stuff. I say, guys, listen, we got to start writing some checks. Okay. Because you know, I'm the only one writing these checks right now and it's going to get ugly real soon. And they did end up putting the money in because they saw the vision to be able to move from an independent league model to a, um, a, a summer collegiate model. So very long story short, we move these teams in, the league is called the futures collegiate league. Um, and it's still running very successfully till this day. Um, in 2012, uh, roughly 2012, 2013, I got the opportunity to sell it all and do pretty well on it. And, uh, I did, I did and was able to do that and, uh, you know, basically walk away from it. I still have ties to the league and things like that and help it, but, uh, it, it's in, it's in good hands now. Um, How many teams are in the league now, present day? Now there's, t- now there's 10. So wow. it went from four to 10. How and awesome, it, man. It, it, it's awesome. And it's thriving. And, you know, throughout the course of things, I got to learn, the business of baseball very, very well. Um, and, and by the way, I have to mention this because, you know, it wasn't all successes um, at the same time that I was starting the, that, that we went in and things were going pretty well with the futures collegiate league. I decided to buy a team in uh, Italy. Baseball in Italy actually is fairly big and they have some, or and was bigger before they had their recessionary hits. And uh, so I decided to buy a team in Grosseto, Italy. And um, it was a complete nightmare <laughs> trying to get people in uh, uh, Europe in general to understand the idea. Because you make your money in baseball off food and beverage and things like that. And they, they, nobody was going to sit in Italy and eat a hot dog in a stand. You know, yeah. they're, they're sit-down table, drink wine, all that stuff. So I totally missed the boat on that. So, um, you know, we closed down after a year of doing it in Italy and had to, you know, walk away with our tail between our legs. Did you move um, over there for that year or were you doing it from I, afar? No, I was over there quite a bit. I was, uh, I didn't necessarily live there because I had my family at that point back in Connecticut, but I was going back and forth uh, every other week um, yeah. and had a place there and things like that. So, um, but again, it taught me about business, taught me about successes and failures and those things. And, um, you know, so I had at, at that point in time, it's 2013. Okay. And I'm, I've sold everything. I've made a few dollars. Um, and you know, things had gone pretty well. I was, um, I was obviously sad about the, um, Italy thing not working out, but it was what it was. And my wife and I were in Miami, Florida on a, uh, a little vacation for our anniversary celebrating it. And I'll never forget it. I got the call that day, um, from a guy by the name of Kevin Towers. Okay. Who was the GM of the, uh, Arizona Diamondbacks at the time. He later passed away. Um, about a year, year and a half ago, but, um, he called me and he said, listen, Chris, I've been following you. Um, and, uh, he goes, you have a very good, we had a very good mutual friend in bill brick, uh, who was a, a major league scout for them. And he said, listen, I want you to come work for us. And, uh, I said, 
okay, I'll do it. And uh, he said, uh, uh, you know, he didn't even tell me what it was at the time. Um, but later on, my, my job in the beginning working with the Diamondbacks was to scout the independent leagues, okay, and to find talent out of those leagues. Because, again, I had gotten the, the reputation of being able to, um, you know, sign a player and, uh, and then, you know, you, you make money also in independent baseball by selling these players back to the major league teams. Yeah. But I had gotten a reputation of being able to do that. So he said, your job is to scout these independent leagues, use your, your contacts and talents to do that, uh, and also to um, uh, handle scouting the Mexican league, okay, which was awesome. You know, uh, I, I loved Mexico. I still do to this day. And I loved the idea of scouting um, those two leagues, the independent leagues and the Mexican league. And they both had one common denominator and in, in, in very much in common is that they both were places where you would go to find undervalued talent, talent that had been overlooked. Get back to the high school stuff. You walked right into it. I was just yeah. about to say, when you're saying that you had a reputation for, for taking these guys and developing them and selling them back to the majors, that this is like you just reliving your what you did for yourself. I mean, it's so awesome being overlooked, undervalued, and now you recognize that in others, and that's what you do. Absolutely. It, it was it was all coming back to fruition again. And, and it, it was an exciting time. So I get this job. And, um, you know, my first order of business is to try to sign, you know, a, as many quality independent league or league players as I could. And um, I knew in order for me, because listen, I, I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. I knew that this was a start. This was getting my foot in the door. But I knew the only way for anybody to take me seriously in this job was for me to sign an impact player. Okay. Well, lo and behold, um, that later on that year um, and into 2014, I end up signing a player by the name of David Peralta. Okay. Um, David was a, a player that had been signed previously by the St. Louis Cardinals as a pitcher. Um, he was playing in an independent league and working at McDonald's at the same time, by the way, which is always wow. the, the greatest story. And he, he'll, he'll write a great book about this one day, but um, I go in to uh, see him. We have a, a long conversation because uh, I like him after seeing him. Uh, and I call up our uh, uh, GM and I say, listen, I want to sign this guy right now. We don't have a spot at this point in time. We didn't have you can't sign a player and not give him an ample opportunity to perform. So I had to tell this player, David, you have to stay right here for now. You have to stay in the independent leagues now, but stay in touch with me. OK. And, you know, you're talking about like minded people attracting each other. I, the only thing I told him was stay in touch with me. And what did this guy do? He called me every freaking day. Are you ready? Guys ready for me. I'm going to be the next big leaguer. I'm this, I'm that. And it wasn't just a cocky guy. This was a guy that knew where he was headed. And six months or excuse me, six weeks after he and I, me working him out and having this conversation, we end up having a spot open for him to come in. And by the time we sign him, he goes into our minor leagues. And with a year and with a, a, a little over a year, he ends up getting to the big leagues, okay, and being, till this day, is one of our best players, okay? So, you know, he's not a household name like you would have in New York or, or things like that, but here in Arizona, he is a household name. He's the guy you root for. He's basically the face of our team, and things like that don't happen. You don't sign a guy out of an independent league yeah. and have him go to the big league. So my impact statement, which I knew I needed to make in order to be taken seriously in this game, was made, yeah. and at that point in time, the, the floodgates opened instead of, you know, at the end of the, that year, uh, our GM, Kevin Towers coming to me and saying, you know, Hey, um, uh, we want to renew your contract for you to do the same thing. He sat down with me and said, what do you want to do? 
what do you want to do? Anything you want. You know, oh, what do you need? Anything you need? I mean, I said, listen, I still want to do the independent league, league scouting. I still want to do the Mexican league because I enjoyed it. But I want to get my hands on this big league team. I want to have be able to give my input uh, on the, the big league roster and things like that. So slowly but surely over time, I was able to make more of an impact and really dive deep into what our major league team was doing and how. So, you know, my job right now is basically to find players that both help our big league team now or in the future or at the minor league level right now. So I'm constantly seeing players, both major league and minor leagues that can make us better. And um, that's really what I started doing a number of years ago. And it's rolled into this much bigger role that I have now with the diamondbacks, which is, which is really to, to give my opinion on wh- where we should go with this team, who we should buy, who we should sign all those things. Wow. And myself, myself and several other guys, um, uh, you know, are, are basically in the same spot to be able to do this. So we're relied upon to tell our GM, Hey, these are the guys we want. Um, this is why um, th- this player is available. And again, this all goes back to network and networking and things like that. Cause I'm dealing with the Yankees all the time. I'm dealing with the Mets all the time. I'm dealing with other teams all the time that, you know, I'm u- and I'm using my connections to be able to, to uh, make trades and, and, and acquire players. And, you know, so now if you look at all these things that have come to fruition now, I would have never been taken seriously to have the job that I have now if I hadn't spent all those years putting on the mascot outfit, learning the business side of things. Because, you know, I have that advantage now. I know all those things from living it. I certainly wasn't an Ivy League guy like a lot of the guys are now. You know, a lot of the baseball executives now, they're strong Ivy League people that have great backgrounds and they're wonderful people. But you know, I was the guy eating paste, you know, and, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, getting sent to the principal's office and, you know, uh, breaking too many rules. And now it's, it's awesome that it all came to fruition like this. But as you can tell, it's been up and down and up and down. And, it, you know, it's now been eight, 10 years that I've been, you know, in this job. And, you know, it, it's been just an amazing, amazing thing. And to get tapped on the shoulder, um, you know, to do and tab to do something like this, you know, most people would say it was beyond my wildest dreams, but you know, I know myself well enough to know that, you know, this was always my dream. This um, is just a I, stepping stone to you playing in the bigs, baby. I, I, yeah, I'm going to wake <laughs> up tomorrow ready to play. You know? This is what you so, do. I want you going into work tomorrow and I want you telling them, I know who's going to change the future of Arizona. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm ready, baby. His name's I'm, Chris Carminucci <laughs> and he eats pace like nobody's business. And, you know, I look back on it now and because I get asked this a lot. I was on a podcast last week and they said, you know, did, did you ever think it would play out like this? And, you know, there really was no other way it could have played out because, you know, my temperament and my um, abrasiveness at times um, would not have fit in any other organization. And by the way, you know, the fact of the matter is our owner loves the undervalued player so much that, you know, he's willing to put his money behind it where, you know, listen, the the Yankees, God bless them. They can go buy anybody they want. The Dodgers, they can get anybody they want. They don't, you know, if they make a mistake on several million dollars, listen, it's a big deal, but it's not that big a deal for us. It's life or death. So, you know, I'm in the right spot. And, you know, my mother will still ask me to this day, you know, do, do, you, do you think the uh, uh, the Yankees will ever come calling? And I say, Mom, F the Yankees, okay? I'm a Diamondback. This is where I want to be. Yeah. Um, this is where I'm going to stay, and this is where I should be. So, you know, it's, it's been a tremendously fun ride. It's so awesome, man. So uh, you kind of answered what I was about to ask before I give you my final three questions, which was, do you have 
you know, do you foresee riding out this position forever? Do you, I, I, I don't see you staying anywhere forever. Personally, after talking to you, like it, it, this will evolve into something, but it sounds like you love the organization. Do you have, and maybe you don't right now, but do you have any, any plans of, or, or any dreams or, or next steps or anything like that, that, that you've been thinking about or no? Well, if history dictates anything, if they come to me and say, you know, hey, we're going out of business, I'm going to go try to buy the team. You know, so, you know it's just a lot more zeros on it now. You know? yeah. <laughs> no, um, uh, I'll say this. My, my, uh, and I, I write everything down. I make long-term goals, short-term goals, all that stuff. I email myself every day about these things and all that stuff about what, what I, and I don't pull any punches when it comes to what I want to do. I want to win a championship right now here in Arizona. That's my goal. Okay. Um, but I joked around about it a minute ago, but um, uh, I also do have aspirations one day of getting into the ownership side of things. Okay, you know, a lot of people will say to me, well, Chris, don't you want to be a GM one day and things like that? You know, I get a lot of car blanche here and, and, and work very closely with our GM and our vice president, everything else. So I get the feeling of what it's or get to be exposed to what it's like to see great people run an organization. And while that is attractive to me, I get exposed to it enough to feel good about that. Yeah. Um, the side of me that's that, that I want to see happen one day, um, and I'm just going to say it, I'd love to be part of an ownership group that is uh, predominantly made up of African-Americans and predominantly made up of women. Um, and that's what I would love to do is to have, because we've never really had that in baseball or in sports in general. And I'd love to, uh, to be part of a team, an ownership part of a team and to run that, that maybe even that ownership side of a team, maybe be the director or something um, of a team that is, is, you know, breaking down barriers and doing things that maybe isn't uh, the norm. And I, I think baseball is trending in that direction. I think sports is trending in that direction. So if you ask me my perfect job, you know, one day it would maybe be to be the president of a major league team and to help run and operate it and to try to, you know, cultivate those relationships into bringing diversity into that ownership side of things. That's so and cool. That, that, that would be my hope and my goal. And, uh, but you know, again, I know this, I know this isn't the end of the road for me because history does repeat itself. So I, I think, uh, you know, I, am just glad I get to come to work and work with these great people. And, uh, I hope I, I can do it for as long as I can. Uh, but I also want to be able to do th you know more things in the game as time goes on. That's uh, your, your entire story is, is so inspiring to me. Um, Tell us just really quick the, the the name of your book. Sign me the undrafted player's guide to the independent leagues. Uh, we don't we don't. Ha I mean that kind of explains itself. We don't have to go into it, but just so everybody knows, I'll have links to all of your stuff so people can. Uh, I, I I don't imagine anybody listens to this and doesn't want to go. Just especially if they're a baseball fan, go go check this stuff out. Um, uh, three questions for you. One, the word no means what to you? Yes. Yeah, it absolutely means yes. There, there, there is, there is no, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sick in the head where I actually sometimes hope, like I said before, I need an, an, an adversity. I need somebody to compete against. I want to hear no sometimes. Okay. I actually want to fail sometimes so I can, you know, get up the next morning and fight. I enjoy the fight. So no, no means yes to me. It's just a matter of time. That's awesome. And what about, um, do you have any, any go-to mantras that you, like when everything's falling apart and it sounds like everything has fallen apart a lot for you. I mean, as, as that's, that's what I love about your story is you, you're uber successful and yet everything has fallen apart. 
Like it's, it just sounds like every every couple of months or years you get a call that everything is done and you got to move on. So what what's your mantra in those times if you have something that you go to? You know, I, I, I'd say two things. I, and I said it earlier. I, I think one of the greatest things I've ever heard of is when you have the opportunity to be, you know, to be right or to be kind, choose kind uh, as often as you can. Um, but I'll say this, I, you know, I think for me, learning how to surround myself with the right kind of people and getting rid of the energy suckers out of my life, which you can ask anybody that's around me, you know, our friends from high school and things like that. I slowly but surely over the years have literally gotten rid of anybody out of my life that is taking up my time, not valuing my time and taking away my energy from doing the things that I want. So my mantra is to, to be me. I know who I am, stay in process and to, to get those people, those energy suckers out of my life and to move forward. Awesome. And then, and then the final one is, um, if you could give your younger self advice, uh, what age would you intervene and what, would the advice be? I would give myself no advice. I wouldn't change a thing. I think all of those um, you know, screwings up and all those things, I needed to learn on my own. I, 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 I say this, the, maybe I, I, if I were to say one thing, if I had have gone to head, I would say I, I should have been kinder uh, when I was younger. I should have been uh, less volatile when I was younger, those things. But I certainly wouldn't have changed anything because I, I, I'm a guy that has to learn by doing. And I, I did it. You know what I mean? And I learned those things by fail, by, you know, by trial and error and failing and all that stuff. And I, and I, I can't change that. And I don't want to change that. I, I, you know what? I, I, and I'll say, I said it before. I hope I fail again. You know what I mean? I, I, yeah. I look forward to the next failure so we can move on and do something uh, you know, even better. Well, you, you've passed my, uh, my Jedi warrior test because that really is a trick question. You can't really, you know, like the, the, that is nobody really would ever listen to that advice. They, that's, that's why they're on this show. Cause, <laughs> cause they didn't listen and they learned through failures and that's, that's how they got here. Um, Chris Carmanucci, I, I can't thank you enough. I love your story. I, I, I love seeing, you know, having known you, you know, no touch with you forever. And then, you know, kind of you coming back into my sphere through Adam Connors and, and then to get to sit down and talk to you myself. This is just, uh, I, I'm, I'm like giddy from here and having this conversation. Thank you, man. Well, it's an honor to sit with you and your success, you know, is unparalleled that we've been watching you all these years and uh, rooting for you as you've made a great career for yourself. So thank you for everything, man. I really appreciate it. It was great catching up with you. Thank you, brother. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right. I hope I didn't oversell it for you. I don't think I did. I love that guy. Here we go. Top three takeaways. Number one, be grateful for where you are. Someone always has it better, but someone else always has it worse. And, and my brother till this day is the one that uh, whenever I'm having a tough day, I'll say, man, who am I to have a tough day? You know, he, he, he's in a wheelchair and, you know, fighting it every day still. Number two, always be kind. After struggling through school and facing ups and downs throughout his career, picking up his life when things weren't going his way, Chris always chose to be kind whether it was to his colleagues, the kids he coached, or his professional players. He always chose to connect with them and to be kind above everything else. You have the opportunity to be, you know, to be right or to be kind, choose kind. Number three, you are the average of the top five people you surround yourself with. 
I slowly but surely over the years have literally gotten rid of anybody out of my life that is taking up my time, not valuing my time and taking away my energy from doing the things that I want. This is not easy to do, but it is necessary if you want to stay positive and motivated. It's rough if those energy suckers are family, friends, a boss. But I think Chris's point is that your time is priceless. Are you just going to give it away to people that make you feel bad about yourself? Okay, folks, that is it. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you enjoy this show in general, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star rating, a great review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It spreads the word. It gives more visibility to the show. We always appreciate it. Um, If you are interested in taking these concepts that we talk about on the show and making them more 3D, making them apply to your life specifically, Go check out the show notes. There's a link there for 10,000 No's Insiders Community. We do weekly live meetings and we have a special guest come in every month and we really grapple with all of these topics as they pertain to your life. Uh, You don't have to be an actor. There are actors in there. There are filmmakers, mostly creatives. Uh, It's just a place that you have a great group of people that you have to be accountable to that are going to encourage you. Uh, Some of them you're going to collaborate with each other. so check that out. You can also go to 10,000knows.com and look for Insiders Community. There's a video about it, more information about it if you are interested. In the meantime, come back every Monday for our short little Monday morsels, and we'll be here every Friday with interviews like this. Chris Carmanucci, cannot thank you enough again for sitting down with me. Everybody who's listening, really appreciate it. We know you have other options out there. We appreciate you coming to 10,000 Knows. That's great. Have a great week. Have a great week.